Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Is this Mrs. R.L.Q. Peacock Tokus of Stopgap, West Virginia? And just to be clear, you are the Mrs. R.L.Q. Peacock Tokus who was recently selected as a Republican convention delegate, yes? Well, guess what? You, Mrs. R.L.Q. Peacock Tokus, have won our grand prize of $25,000 plus other items of value and a luxury cruise to the Grand Zika Key Resorts in Florida. Prize contingent on voting for Ted Cruz in all rounds of a multi-ballot convention. Prize made possible by an anonymous billionaire. Mileage may vary. Consult your physician before accepting prize. Paul Ryan is a little sissy man. It's okay if you didn't hear all of it. It's only important that I said it, so. You're going to hear all sorts of things when you get to Cleveland. It gets crazy out on the floor during those later rounds, and... You may hear the names of people who haven't been vetted through the primary process, so keep in mind that Kid Rock is really stupid, and Alex Trebek is totally Canadian, and Dennis Rodman is basically Ben Carson with muscles. That's right. The main thing to keep telling yourself is that none of those people is offering you a grand prize. Totally legal. Does Ted Cruz seem like the kind of manipulative... Weasel who would cut corners just to hold on to some stray delegates. I mean, let me rephrase it then. While I'm thinking of a way to do that, here's the Monday scramble. And now all he wants is 50 bucks, the same amount he got for sticking with Dewey and 52. Colin McEnroe. That's true. It was 50 bucks. I think it was some flatware too, or some steak knives they gave us. And then a lot of good it did anybody, but that was. Uh, a so-called open convention or a multi-ballot convention. I think we have to get away from saying brokered convention. It seems so judgmental and cheesy. Uh, anyway, we have a lot of a lot of politics to talk about uh, today. A little bit later on the show, you know, we've sort of reached the point in the season where everybody's getting sick. I, the poor people covering the campaign are traveling around. They've all got colds and flu. Greg Hill's home with the flu, too. Wolfie's trying to get over a cold. Uh, and I've been fine, except that I do have a touch of the De La Fuente flu. Uh, that's uh, named after Rocky De La Fuente, who is actually Actually, if you watch the Democratic debates and you see Sanders, you see Clinton, and you think, is there anybody else? Well, there kind of is. Uh, he's on the can- on the ballot in, I think, 33 states, including Connecticut, where he has the top line. Um, and we'd like to talk to these candidates who are a little bit outside the mainstream margins. So that'll be the second part of our show today. Meanwhile, uh, speaking of campaign moments, uh, have you had your Domenico Montanaro moment? Mine came, I don't know, a few months ago. I was listening to the morning edition uh, in my usual groggy, it was Sunday weekend edition, uh, in my usual groggy Sunday state. And suddenly this voice came on. It was like just somebody really keeping it real, talking about the campaign the way it really is. And I said, who is that guy again? I want him on my show. I want him to come on my show. So we got our wish today. Domenico Montanaro is the NPR lead editor for politics and digital audience. uh, And he has been following the campaign. And first of all, welcome to our show. 
Uh, thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's great to have you. One thing we like about you, Domenico, is that you've been pretty upfront about how much this political season diverges from any playbook the press has for covering campaigns and how quickly these narratives can pivot week to week. So in previous weeks, it's been about wives or walls or bullets dipped in blood or violence at rally- rallies or e- email servers or socialism. And this week, it's going to be something else. We're just starting to know what the something else is. It seems as though one of the first something Something else is is going to be the delegates themselves as opposed to the processes by which they're selected, right? Who are these people and what can be done to influence them? Well, you know, as we start moving toward what the likelihood of a contested multi-ballot open convention, as you were putting it, and brokered is probably not the right phrase. We were actually talking with uh, Ben Ginsburg, a Republican lawyer who helped write some of the rules in 2012. And he said brokered's probably not the right word because there are no more brokers in the Republican right. Party. You know, there used to be a time where, you know, you could say in 1976, when the last time there was an open convention, that, you know, uh, maybe the governor of the state of wherever could help move all of the delegates at once behind some candidate. But that's not the case anymore. And it's a much different landscape than it, than it has been. But everybody now is suddenly needing to become a delegate expert <laughs> because of, you know, people like me used to sort of flounder in my own esoteric uh, you know, spreadsheets, <laughs> you know, uh, ca- trying to calculate uh, what the numbers left remaining are. And not often does it really matter all that much, uh, especially in the last 40 years. But this time around, uh, we're starting to get to that point because Ted Cruz swept in Colorado over the weekend. He also won in Wisconsin. And by doing that raises Donald Trump's uh, the need for what he needs remaining is something like 60 percent of all the remaining delegates. It's easier to do on the Republican side than the Democratic side because the Democrats have a proportional allocation, but it's still very difficult. Yeah. So uh, in, in states like Connecticut, which is coming up, it is possible uh, to it's not we're, we're sort of a hybrid state. We're not quite winner take all, but we can be winner take all. Uh, and um, so for states like that, Trump can really pile them up fast. But then the question becomes, um, first of all, how many of these delegates uh, are completely bound going into the convention itself and how many of them would be recklessly unbound after an unsuccessful first ballot? And, and that at that point, it gets really interesting. And one of the narratives that kind of popped up over the last 24 hours, Domenico, is, as alluded to in our introduction, there are these accusations flying back and forth that, in fact, delegates are being offered things which may not even be completely illegal, but the, the delegates are, are being offered things to forswear their previous loyalties or, or keep to their previous loyalties on multiple ballots. We'll see what people are persuaded with, but uh, certainly not illegal to offer uh, people uh, all kinds of things. Uh, I don't think that they can offer them straight cash. <laughs> right. <I'm laughs> They've got to be a little bit more creative than that. Uh, but, you know, back in 1976, for example, some of the delegates were offered rides on Air Force One. Uh, some of the Mississippi delegates who wound up needing to be persuaded and by Gerald Ford, who was at the time the current president. Now, no one's able to do that this time around, but uh, something close to it, maybe a ride on Trump's plane or, or something else. Now, they can't offer them federal jobs either, but they can, uh, you know, tell them how important they think they are and uh, how how much they'd love for them to be part of their uh, next administration or as an advisor or something like that. So there's going to be plenty of that that we wind up hearing about. This is really unchartered territory for a lot of people, and who knows what's going to wind up being offered. 
Right. I think Kasich is offering pony rides. He doesn't have quite the budget, really, as some of the other campaigns. Um, but, I, but apparently might be a lot of these delegates. I mean, they have to get to Cleveland from wherever they are. Um, and, and a lot of them are not necessarily people of Help means. Pay for their flights or, yeah. you know, their per diems for their meals. Uh, things like that are all perfectly, quote unquote, proper. Yeah. But it sort of depends on where it comes from, too. But if it comes from some billionaire who's not officially. Yeah, that you can't do. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean that it's it's it can come from the campaigns, uh, but it you know super PACs are not supposed to do this. Uh, but you know the FEC doesn't have much teeth, you know the Federal Election Commission, and you know it could take years before someone is punished for any kind of uh, underhanded uh, laundering or <laughs> such from uh, from some uh, outside group. You mean they don't have 1,237 SEC agents <laughs> uh, be exp- assigned to each winning vote? So, yeah. so you've got that. You've got that, that whole idea of that kind of accusation flying back and forth and just that notion that delegates are human beings. And, and one thing that I can say, having covered a bunch of conventions, is that it really is kind of true that once things get rolling, you could go in there saying, I will be loyal to Trump or Cruz or Kasich or whatever, you know, no matter how many ballots there are, uh, you know, until he actually – you know, orally releases me, uh, I, you know, I, I will never waver. Well, stuff happens out on the floor. And for a lot of these delegates, it's, it's an environment they've never been in before. They've never been in envi- an environment quite like this. So uh, the fact that they might even say that they're loyal <laughs> may not be worth, you know. Well, right. And these aren't exactly all party activists. You know, some of these folks are just regular people who wanted to be a delegate and have a seat at the convention. This time around, they're going to have a front seat to something uh, kind of unprecedented, most likely. Uh, so for a lot of them, you know, it will there will be a lot of persuasion. And that's why you see somebody like Ted Cruz going to places like North Dakota and Colorado and Wyoming and even in Florida, where he's Florida is bound for like four ballots based on there. But you've got Ted Cruz working it behind the scenes so that people know that he could be a good second choice if it comes to that. Now, if we get into a multi-ballot or open convention, we're not going to say brokered anymore. It sounds like somebody's got like a Century 21 sign up outside the Cleveland Arena or something. Uh, so, um, Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> so if it comes to an open thing, one of the interesting players, and you've covered this a bit, is going to be John Kasich. Like, why has this guy stayed yeah. in? Uh, well, you know, he had a rally in Connecticut last Friday to a pretty large crowd. This is the kind of state where Kasich might do pretty well. We're certainly not a right. cruise state. We might not be a Trump state. And, and so Kasich going into a convention like this, you know, even a small number of votes, including some delegates who are now it's turning out a couple of uh, Kasich delegates have pretty good committee assignments within uh, the conventions. He really could become a pretty powerful guy on the floor. He could. And, you know, Marco Rubio has even more delegates than he does. And Marco Rubio has told his delegates he doesn't want to release them, doesn't want them leaving him. So he clearly wants to have some kind of power, some kind of leverage on the floor. Who knows for what exactly? But you want that bargaining chip. John Kasich's got a little over 140. And that certainly could could be an important block of votes as well. And John Kasich has been running a very different campaign than the other candidates. I mean, more positive message, big state governor. It's going to be important for him to feel like you know he's got his imprimatur on somebody else. Uh, you know the big question that always comes up, and you know you hear these two names, Rubio and Kasich, Florida and Ohio. They happen to be two states Republicans have to win in order to win the White House. 
why not a vice presidential pick potentially for one of them? You know, and uh, there's a back and forth on whether or not someone like John Kasich would want to serve as Donald Trump's vice president. Uh, you know, who knows? Politics is the kind of thing where on one day you think that someone's your best friend and the next day they're not and uh, vice versa. So, you know, I, I wouldn't rule anything or anyone out. Back on, over on the other side, Domenico, on the Democratic side, you did a piece a while ago about how in some ways uh, Bernie Sanders has already won, at least yeah. in the sense that his issues will heretofore be taken seriously. People's uh, understanding of how these scenarios play out with, with challenged candidates from the progressive part of the Democratic Party, uh, how, the, how that does play out, how it will happen in the future. But now, you know, I mean, that, I think that piece ran before Wisconsin. Um, so the Sanders math is changing a little bit. I mean, he's not close if you yeah. throw in superdelegates. He is close if you just look at pledged delegates coming out of primaries. Yeah, I, I they're, you know, defined close. I mean, that's the <laughs> yeah. I think that's the issue because, you know, he still needs and the math didn't really change all that much even after Wisconsin, even after Wyoming. Wyoming they wound up splitting. He went from needing 58% of all remaining delegates to 57% of all remaining delegates. Like that's not a huge change. Uh he's got to win in all the rest of these states with that same margin. Now, I guess it's possible, but it's very unlikely that that happens. It's very hard to win in politics by that kind of margin almost anywhere. He's done it in some of these caucus states, um, but to win in big northeastern primaries like New York, Connecticut, uh, Pennsylvania, Maryland, that's that's a more difficult hill to climb. And then to do it in California as well is really where the, 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 the what's going to be determinative. If he can win 58% there, sure. Now, if he were to win New York, yeah, I mean, that's a narrative-changing kind of win because it's where Hillary Clinton lives. So, And then clearly when you add superdelegates in, it's a much more difficult climb for him. Uh, but, you know, who knows? Who knows what can happen? That's why people still vote. I think on message, though, no question about it, this is somebody who came from uh, very far behind, 50 points behind. No one gave him any kind of real shot at this. And there's clearly a vulnerability for Hillary Clinton, even if she is the nominee, particularly on message, particularly with younger voters. Uh, people are in this country fed up with politics as usual, and nothing says that more than a legacy dynastic name. Uh, and I think that that's something that Democrats are wrestling with. Right. And, you know, the superdelegate part of this is really interesting to me, too. I mean, it's if, as somebody pointed out earlier today, if, if the Republicans had as many superdelegates as the Democrats do, you know, Jeb Bush might still be kind of viable or, he, you know, and he's the kind of legacy candidate who, who does attract superdelegates. But the problem with superdelegates is they really aren't pledged. You know, they can do anything they want at any given moment. So as chess pieces, they're much more unpredictable. And and I mean, once again, I, I agree with you about the way the math works out. But if things changed for some kind of reason, there's nothing to stop hundreds of superdelegates from bolting right. to Sanders or if somebody else jumped in in the middle of a complicated convention scenario. Totally, which is why I think most people inside the campaigns know that the pledged delegate race is what's most important. Because if Bernie Sanders were to win a pledged majority, we were to get that 57 percent through all the rest of the remaining processes, it would be hard. It's a hard argument to make to those superdelegates that they should go against uh, the way that their states voted. Neither, you know, the Sanders campaign would like to get there. The uh, Clinton campaign doesn't want to have to rely on superdelegates. The difficult thing about this is, and it's never been tested, but superdelegates were created for this very reason, for being able to put a thumb on the scale 
to help across the line a candidate they thought had a better chance of winning. That's the whole reason that they were created in the first place. So people will say superdelegates have always gone with the winner. That's true, but there really hasn't been this kind of controversy. Superdelegates, just to let people know, there are 714 of them. That's roughly 15% of all of the Democratic delegates. So I don't know that it would actually help someone like Jeb Bush because he would be so far behind, but he certainly would have more of a leg up than uh, than he than he had when he left, for sure. All right, we're going to grab a quick break here. We're going to be back with more Domenico Montanaro after the proverbial this. Democratic right, vote for me. Stand up and join the fight, vote for me. I can't exactly tell you why, but here's my battle cry. Vote for me, vote for me. All right. We're talking to, to Domenico Montanaro right now. I would also uh, shamelessly say that Domenico Montanaro is one of the reasons that when a little pledge break pops up here in a few minutes, so you should think about supporting this station. Uh, you wind up supporting the work that he does as well because we pay NPR to get his work. Um, and obviously you're supporting this show. And uh, so anyway, if it's important to you, then think about making the call when the nice people start to talk to you. Domenico Montanaro is the NPR lead editor for politics and uh, digital audience. Uh, you you use the phrase thumb on the scale, which is kind of funny because I had that uh, phrase in my notes, but about <laughs> something else. And that uh-huh. is, you know, there have been some conversations over the last week about uh, how much members of the press can or should put their thumb on the scale in certain ways. Paul Krugman has been a pretty, of the New York Times, Nobel Prize winning economist, pretty solid supporter of the candidacy of Hillary Clinton. But lately, he's also been kind of taking a more aggressive stance against Bernie Sanders. Uh, and, and he's having these duels, you know. It, one thing that happens right now, one of the things that happens for anybody covering these campaigns is that uh, ardent Sanders supporters are never happy with the press coverage, always feel it's kind of tilted the wrong way. But now we see, you know, Krugman really getting into a duel a little bit. There are all these blogs popping up where people are pulling Krugman's economics apart on this. It's a little unusual to have a, can- a, a, a columnist accused of being that much in favor of a particular candidate. Well, he is a columnist, and I think we should say that there's a difference between a commentator and an analyst. Uh, you know, I, I kind of play a, more of a role of a nonpartisan an- analyst um, and a reporter and an editor. So there, there's a different kind of philosophy when you're setting out coverage uh, to think about what we should cover, what we shouldn't cover, uh, and uh, versus what kind of column am I going to write this week and uh, what kind of attention can I get for that. Now, Paul Krugman seems annoyed, mm, yeah. <laughs> to say the least, right? I mean, that's his view, and uh, I'm, you know, there are other people who, uh, Robert Reich, uh, for example, uh, on Bernie Sanders' side, uh, who would take issue with with some of what Paul Krugman has had to say. So, you know, uh, you can find a, a viewpoint uh, to favor you. I think that's been one of the big changes over this last decade and a half, uh, since probably 2000, 2001 or so, you've become much more of a niche media culture. And when you want information that agrees with what you say, you can find somebody who can basically tell you uh, what you believe. I mean, we saw that in the last election cycle in 2012, uh, when you had uh, a guy create this website called Unskew the Polls, because they were so upset that they thought that the press were, you know, uh, were, uh, were wrong on the polls about Mitt Romney losing to Barack Obama. Well, that didn't happen to be the case. 
and you know there's no accountability for that but as it went along it certainly made uh his his people feel good or at least upset with the press i think another thing that's going on a little bit that i see is slightly different from other election cycles although it's not unique so in every election cycle during the the primary part of it the nomination seeking part of it there are questions about how much one candidate can or should damage another candidate but it's pretty much no holds barred you get to say whatever you want to say so the term voodoo economics was coined by george hw bush while running against Ronald Reagan, this this phrase that stuck to Ronald Reagan, voodoo economics, actually came from the guy who was his eventual vice president. So, I mean, that happens. On the other hand, I do sense in some of the writing that I see this this notion that Hillary Clinton is a, a fragile enough candidate, and I don't mean in terms of her temperament, but just in terms of the the ways in which she can be damaged. The fact that you know the the email stuff is is still out there, um, the relationship with Wall Street stuff is still out there. Um, that it's a um, a delicate enough relationship with the voters that people get really nervous about how much criticism is going to come from Sanders and Sanders surrogates. Um, and, and I see that in a little bit in the writing of Krugman and some of these other guys that's don't go too far. I mean, that's there in every campaign, maybe a little bit more this time around. Yeah, I was going to say it, it does happen in in a lot of campaigns um, where, you know, there's always the the conversation about whether or not a primary helps or hurts a front runner. Um, and, most of the time it helps because it makes them a better candidate. They're able to fend someone off. When you get closer to, you know, a convention or when a person looks like they're inevitable, like I guess Paul Krugman Krugman would see Hillary Clinton as having a better shot here now, uh, feeling like what's the tone that Bernie Sanders should set out? And instead of backing off and, uh, you know, sticking to maybe an issue-based difference, uh, you see some more seemingly personal attacks between both of them. You know, who's qualified to be president or not qualified to be president. You know, trying to take what could be some of those deep vulnerabilities on ties to Wall Street, for example, and really using them in what could be a harmful way, at least as her supporters see it, uh, toward her. You know, and his supporters would say that that's not his responsibility to try to to try to shield her in some way because that's what's going to be used against him. So vote against her. So vote for Bernie Sanders. And that's they're still in that mode. Uh, and I think someone like Paul Krugman sees it as wrapping up and would like the Sanders folks to back off. So the other thing that happened in the press over the last few days is the Boston Globe did this really crazy thing. And when I say really <laughs> crazy thing, the re- reason I say that is it's because just unusual. Yeah. Well, the, we we did exactly the same thing two weeks ago, and we tend to do really yeah. crazy things. So. So we, we projected three years out and then interviewed futurists and economists and all kinds of people about what they thought would be happening three years into a Trump presidency. The the Globe went uh, one year into a presidency and put out a front page just using Donald Trump's own statements and, and turning them into to news articles and, and did this kind of fake front page. And Domenico, one thing we know right away is with an anti-intellectual candidate like Donald Trump, anything like that you do to a certain degree is tinder he can throw on his own fire. Well, he could take the copies of the Boston Globe newspaper, (laughs) crumple them up and put them in his fire starter, I guess. Um, You know, I mean, their headline was deportations to begin uh, was the big the big one. Uh, And yeah, I mean, I think that the press is generally looking around at what's the how do you cover something as unusual a candidacy as Donald Trump's and the Boston Globe decided to take this tack it's not one that you'd see from a lot of organizations uh, but they decided to put their editorial on the front page and the New York Times has done that as well uh, earlier in this campaign also related to Trump saying that he needed to be stopped 
Um, you know, last uh, area to get into uh, is, oh, by the way, the, on the Boston Globe thing, the stuff out in the kind of marginalia is really enjoyable. Like, I think uh-huh. I think it turns out Kid Rock is the ambassador to Japan or something like that. And oh. there's like lots of little things on that front page that are, are worth looking at. But anyway, <laughs> um, the last thing to get into, I wanted to get into is, you know, in some ways, because this has been an incredibly complicated race, it's almost as though as as our quant capacity ratchets up, our ability to, to, uh, to datafy uh elections we've been given an election that that's more complicated it's like it's like the the, the race is is there to to meet the the new capacity of quants and data and anal- analysts but there's so much effort being put into this i i don't know whether you worry that we're going to wake up one day and go wow we really didn't talk that much about climate change we didn't really talk that much uh, about i mean there's this incredible story today about a study about how higher income is associated with greater longevity and, and then that varies by your geographical location i mean you know, this is the kind of stuff maybe we should be talking about, except that it takes so much time to cover this other stuff. Well, you know, the thing is, you know, you get you get stuck in a news cycle and what's happening, what the controversies are, what people are saying to each other back and forth, because you can, you know, once you get past what the issues are and how they feel about those positions, you know, there isn't a whole lot to go beyond on that. But I will say, frankly, beyond those issues, I'm, you know, pretty stunned that the American public pays as much attention to a presidential race this far out for this long a period of time and then pays almost no attention to midterms when mm-hmm. there are so many races up and down the ballot that matter and, you know, shape what happens. I mean, a president is one third of the government and, you know, there's hardly any of the fraction of attention that's paid to those congressional races. And uh, it's it's really a fascinating quirk of our society, I'd have to say. It's something of a celebrity kind of thing where people feel like they put their, their vote in the ballot for this president, this person they liked, and they had their say and did their part. But the rest of it, the civic engagement, the congressional races, down ballot, they probably in a way have more impact. All right, Domenico, Domenico Montanaro, keep doing what you're doing. We love the way you're doing Thank it. Thank you so much. NPR yeah. lead editor for politics and digital audience. And if you like the, what he what he's doing and if you like what we're doing, some people are coming on right now to talk to you about that. And if you would consider making the phone call, making the pledge, it's uh, it would mean a lot. And it always helps this show if the pledges happen during our particular broadcast. So think about that and search your hearts. Do what's right. I know you will. the last time you and I will speak before you're infected with de la fuente flu lots of fluid and rest okay today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me Kion Wolf our intern is Alexandra Ingber Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin the part of Bill Curry was played by Adlai Stevenson for show pages articles and a here and now staff secret plan to nominate Katy Perry on the third ballot go to our website wnpr.org slash Colin on tomorrow's show love in the age of snapchat and now, back to Colin. If you are planning to vote in the Connecticut Democratic primary, which is April 26th, you may be thinking of this as an essentially binary choice. Sanders-Clinton, Clinton-Sanders, Bernie-Hillary, Hillary-Bernie. But that's not quite true. In fact, the first name that you'll see on the ballot as you uh, behold 
uh, the ballot here is uh, neither of those names. It is the name of Rocky De La Fuente, our next guest here. He is a candidate for president. He is on the ballot in many states. And uh, he will, as he's secured the top line, just the way things worked out, he got the top line on the ballot here in Connecticut. He's joining us right now from uh, Uruguay. Welcome to our show. Thank you very much, Colin. And so um, for people who don't know you at all, give us, uh, give us the 60-second introduction to uh, Rocky De La Fuente. First of all, I'm a San Diegan, born in San Diego Mercy Hospital, do business in 45 different cities in California. But more importantly, I do business in, in Connecticut for the last over 20 years. I do business in West Hartford and in Hartford. So I've been paying taxes in Connecticut for over 20 years, go there quite often, have a beautiful office building in, in West Harvard, and I have some beautiful apartments in Harvard. Um, so when you say you do business, is I know you've been in the uh, car dealership business in the past. What kind of businesses do you have now? Well, uh, I have a lot of businesses, but for example, in Connecticut, I own a beautiful building, beautiful building in one of the most important intersections. It's a Class A building. I have a lot of tenants. I have a huge bank in the first floor. And in other parts of Harvard, I have uh, apartment complexes. So that's a little bit about you. Now, uh, there are probably a lot of uh, businessmen like you who are not running for president. I can think of another businessman who is running for president, but most are not. What is it about you that makes you think that uh, you you need to take it up to the next level, that being the White House? Well, quite simple. First of all, take a look at the options. If you had Ronald Reagan, if you had John Kennedy— I would have stayed home. If you had Martin Luther King, I would have stayed home. We have 330 million people in the United States. We have to have some better options. And nobody else was coming forward. I said, let's give the American people one alternative, one that happens to be multicultural, bilingual, and that has not worked in politics all their life, that has paid real taxes, that has had real problems, and likes to solve people. And what I do best is I know how to generate jobs, jobs, and more jobs. I know how to build infrastructure, infrastructure, and more infrastructure. Plus, I'm 100% bilingual. I can communicate with secretary states from all the countries in two perfect languages, in their own languages. And more importantly, I love America. I do business in many, many states, and I'm there. So if you, you were elected president um, and, and, let's say, you'd served a year in office, what do you think you would have changed by then? And I'm not really sort of talking about the output on the other end of the pipeline. In other words, obviously, you believe that you can make business grow, the economy grow, more jobs. I get that. But in terms of actual um, tangible structural changes that you would make, things you would do right away, first six months in office, what are one or two of those things? Well, first of all, what part of the American people that have not been invited to be part of the system is the homeless. Mm -hmm. It is my intention to put in place a system, and I will not collect a paycheck, or or I will not cash a paycheck until I accomplish four things. And one of them is to eliminate 50% of all the homeless from the streets. Those people deserve a second chance. Those people deserve a third chance. And we're not being welcoming to the prosper American economy. Second... We need to grow the economy 4 to 5%. Why? It's outrageous that a country of our size can grow that size. But we currently owe $19 trillion. If we do not start on the right direction, we will basically completely saddle your children and your grandchildren for, for perpetuity. 
So we need to basically start making a dent. And the only way to make that dent is to generate new jobs. My intention is to generate a minimum of 4 million new jobs per year for the eight years, assuming I get reelected. So that's 32 million new jobs. Third, it is my intention to create in each community, at least for me to collect my paycheck, 100 new city parks that will be basically in the right cities and will be able to allow our, our youth to be able to enjoy basketball or other sports versus trying to play Nintendo or be in their iPhones. In those whatsoever to the taxpayers. It will be an urban re- renewal like it never has been done in the mass that I plan to do it. Why? Don't tell me what you're going to do, Colin. Tell me what you've done. Mm-hmm. This is what I do for a living. I generate business parks. I generate community parks. I generate a lot of things. Um, how would you create jobs? Um, you're talking about these, these very uh, aggressive and ambitious goals for job creation. But but do presidents really cr- create jobs? Do they cause that to happen? Yes, they do, Colin. If so, you need to do is have somebody with a little bit of common sense. And if he basically comes up with the right direction where this country goes, the answer is they do. We happen to have it a crossroads between the economy and our environment. Well, there's a new thing called nubulinic acid. That's going to be the new way for America to grow. It's going to be better than the Internet. It's going to be better than Facebook. It's going to be better than, than telephone technology. What's it called again? It's lebulinic acid. Hmm. But this basically will basically we will put 1,000 new factories across America. And with these factories, we will generate, we will basically no longer be dependent on foreign fuel. And we're going to generate by biomass. We're going to generate diesel that will not have to be subsidized by the United States. So we're all America will be powered by biodiesel with no U.S. subsidy whatsoever. Hey, let's talk, let's talk a little bit about immigration, too. Obviously, you have a strong stance on immigration policy. It's one of the ways you're probably a, a kind of different uh, from, say, I don't know, Donald Trump, another businessman who's running. What's your policy? It's quite simple. There's currently 12 million people in the United States. They're here. I do not see them as liabilities, and I don't see them as scapegoats. I see them as real people that I consider them assets. Those 12 million people have created lives, ties. They have married an American citizen. They have American, uh, American citizens' children. Now, somebody has to look at the logistics. How do you deport 12 million people? Mathematically, it cannot be done. You need 220,000 buses. Now, where do these people come from? They come from Philippines. They come from Ethiopia. They come from China. They come from India. And, of course, they come from Mexico, Honduras, Matehuala, Honduras, San Salvador, etc. You cannot just put them on a bus and hope that 12, 000, 12 million people disappear. The last time it was tried, it was in Germany in 1941. And they just went from Germany to Austria by train. Mm-hmm. And we do understand the outcome of those people. Folks, it's not going to happen. We need those people to basically front load the economy so we can start generating 40, excuse me, 32 million new jobs and keep this economy growing. So are we talking path to citizenship here? No question about it. We need to have those people to be able to get paperwork, to be able to work, 
because we're not going to be able, folks, to deport them. It's impossible. Now, let me just ask you a little bit, some questions about process. I mean, look, the reality is, I mean, we were very eager to do this show with you because you're first on the ballot. And I feel as though most people don't know your name. So why, why is that? Why don't more people know who Rocky De La Fuente is? Is there some way in which the system works against a person like you trying to run from an unconventional base? Well, first of all, if you go to Rocky2016.com, you go to my page and you'll see everything there is to know about me. Two, if you basically go uh, to Google and you put my name, you will see that over the last 60 days, I've been in shows like yours and TV shows, over 2,000 of them. I have received exposure over $100 million. But, of course, that's a drop in the bucket compared to the $6 billion that Hillary, Sanders, and, and Trump have been getting. So I'm there. Why am I not more? Because I should have been allowed to participate in the debates. That is by invitation only, and it's controlled by somebody very, very corrupt, which is called Debbie Wasserman Schultz. She's supposed to represent the party, and she is trying to run a dictatorship for one purpose and one purpose only, to elect Queen Hillary. That's what's wrong with the American system, is we have a two-party system it works well as long as you have honest, hardworking people in the head of those two systems. But when you have somebody that's corrupt, like uh, Demi Washerman Schultz, the system breaks down. We need to replace that chair and put somebody there that will work for the best of the party, for all the party, and not for one goal and one goal only. We should say Debbie Wasserman Schultz is the uh, head of the Democratic National Committee, and, and her policies on debates have attracted the irritation not only of you, Rocky De La Fuente, but uh, Bernie Sanders and his supporters, a sort of sense that the debates are not that numerous, they're not scheduled at high visibility times. Uh, so that Now, is- ima- imagine if Bernie upset and he had managed to participate, how do you think I feel when I was not even allowed to participate? But let me ask you this. What should the threshold be? I mean, uh, you can't have 10. You, well, you could. The Republicans did. I mean, you could have 10 people out on stage. But, but I think most people would agree there should be some bar you have to clear. Not let's simply. Talk, let's, let's, talk, let's talk about the bar. OK. The Republicans started with 20 and eventually they, they got dwindled down there. I've been there's only been three, uh, three candidates in the Democratic Party since February 1st. Mm-hmm. Once O'Malley dropped out, we were down to three. Now, what do I need to do? I was able to get over 10% in Austin County, excuse me, in Travis County. Mm-hmm. I was able to basically go beat everybody in, in, the, in, in New Hampshire, and I was able to come in third in New Hampshire. What does somebody have to do? I was able to beat Sanders in Clinton County in Texas, Okay. I was able to build, I mean, what do you need to do? I was able to beat, on the Republican side, in Texas, I, I was able to beat Bush in over 45% of the counties. What does a person have to do? I qualified in 46 states. You know, when you put I mean, it that way. Uh... I qualified in 46 states. I'm the first person in history to qualify in Massachusetts, besides the, the traditional way, mm-hmm. in, in North Carolina, in Michigan. I had to go to the ballot, and 20,166 people put me in the ballot in Michigan. What happens is that we happen to have the all-boys network, the political privilege, who gets to participate and who does not. 
Now, I'm, the cock, I'm in the caucus in Iowa. I'm in the caucus in Nevada. 24s before the caucus, they take me out of the, uh, out of the ballot system. Ooh. Folks, that's immoral, unethical, and illegal. So how do you think you're going to do in Connecticut? Well, Connecticut is quite simple. There's basically three of us. Mm-hmm. Now, let me tell you what, what should happen. I should basically be pulling at least 20% of the Connecticut people. Now, here's what's going to happen. They're going to commit voter fraud, which no. we, have, we have already, already, they did it in Arizona. They did it in Texas. They did it in, in Louisiana. They have done it in Michigan and Ohio. I'll be more than happy to call in to send you all the facts and the numbers. I find that a hard thing to believe. I mean, you may be right about this, but, you know, I mean, elections are also overseen here. I mean, even primary elections are overseen by a whole government apparatus. You really think that it can be that easily compromised so as to skew results away from you? No question about it. I will show you. I'll fax it to you in the next 10 minutes. and You can have them. You can enjoy them. And maybe this is going to be everybody heard about Watergate. Folks, this is 10 times bigger than Watergate. So you've got the, the New York and Connecticut primaries coming up, and they are coming up in, what, about 15 days from today. Should you be in Uruguay? Shouldn't you be up here? <laughs> well, let's start from scratch. Yeah. Uh, first of all, uh, uh, first of all, I, do not, I, I was not allowed to participate in New York. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to be a, a, one of the states that I did not make it was New York. They made a decision not to put me on the ballot in New York. So I, even though I should have been in New York, I will not so. Mm-hmm. So, but I got to ask you again. You're running for president. You know, it's a short season. Uh, it's about six months left. What are you doing in Uruguay? It's quite simple, sir. Uh, prior to jumping in for the president of the United States, I have prior commitments that I did over a year ago, and I'm meeting here a couple of governors, and I'm meeting here the vice president of the of, of Uruguay, which I had already had prior commitments on a huge project that has to do with energy that will be able to make sure that we have a better environment for you, myself, and for our future generations. Well, I, Rocky De La Fuente, I want you to know, here at the Colin McEnroe Show, we really are very committed to ha- having as many voices heard as possible, not just the ones that fit into some kind of mainstream expectation about what a candidate can or can't be. So we're uh, very happy to have you on today. Uh, and so are you going to visit Connecticut in between now and, and April? Of course, uh, Colin. April 26th, I mean? Of course, Colin. I have my whole campaign is currently in in Connecticut. They've been working in Connecticut for the last 30 days. I already have been in Connecticut uh, prior to today, and I will be basically arriving in Connecticut on the 21st, 22nd of April. The election's on the 26th. Mm -hmm. So I'll be there, and if you want me live in your show on the 22nd, 23rd, I'll love to see you. All right. Well, we certainly will watch for that. Uh, and, yeah, it'd be great to meet you uh, when you come up here, Rocky De La Fuente. In the meanwhile, in the words of Groucho Marx, you go Uruguay and I'll go mine. Thanks for joining us today. <laughs> Thank you very much, Colin. Right. Bye-bye. I don't know about you, but I'm voting for Ivan Drago. I mean, he put up a really good fight in Rocky Four, and he didn't quite make it, but he's had 30 years to train.